Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm here at Quantico today with Bruce Goodmanson. He's a historian studying innovation in military land forces and has authored numerous books and articles, including Stormtroop Tactics, On Artillery, On Armor, and The British Expeditionary Force, 1914-15. to Bruce has spent 20 years in the United States Marine Corps Reserve, eight of which were spent on active duty. He rose in rank from private to major, and since then has taught at several colleges, including the Marine Corps University in Quantico, and has conducted case method workshops for various countries in Europe. Bruce, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. I'm delighted to be here, Eric. Great. So I wanted to start by giving our listeners a feel for the decision-forcing case studies that you're doing down in Quantico. Can you introduce us to a quick version of the case study with Emil Romilo? Who was he, and what situation did he encounter? Yeah, so perhaps I should start up by talking about what a decision-forcing case is, a DFC. It's, it's a, as you mentioned, it's a kind of case study. That's to say it's, a, it's a, an examination of something that actually happened. It's from the point of view of a particular person, and it involves a great deal of role play. So we take participants in the exercise, tell them that they are the protagonist of the case, and then present them with a problem faced by that person in real life. This is a real person. This actually happened, so it's historical. And then we say, name of person, historically accurate title, what do you do? So, for example, you took part in one of our exercises in which we all played the role of Emile Romilho. Emile Romilho was a, a French military officer and engineer a graduate of the Ecole Polytechnique. So it's like like going to MIT or Caltech, something like that. Very clever fellow. And he was part of a team that invented, developed the famous French 75. We're in the uh, the turn of the last century, the the Belle Epoque. You know, imagine Toulouse-Lautrec and and Can-Can Girls and the, the Moulin Rouge and and, and things like absinthe, people are, are drinking a lot of absinthe, or at least they're pretending to. So this is, this is that wonderfully colorful era in, it's the, it's the era in which they're building the Eiffel Tower, which is actually is, is relevant because it's, 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 it's a huge building made out of steel. So um, that's the era in which we are, uh, which we're simulating. And Romilho is really a paragon of the French military system. He's, again, academically, very well prepared. He's very scientific in his background. He's quite the mathematician. And he worked on this this wonder weapon of the era, the 75 millimeter field gun of model 1897. And this is a revolutionary weapon because it can be fired without moving backwards. So for for all of human history, since the invention of gunpowder, every time you fired a cannon, it would roll back. You know, Isaac Newton called your answering service, right? Every action is an equal and opposite reaction. And that meant that when you wanted to fire it again, you had to move it back into position. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. 
So what Romilo and his two other uh, colleagues do is they develop a system whereby only the barrel recoils. So it's uh, the technical term is on-carriage recoil-absorbing system. So the, the barrel actually slides on a, a device that includes a brake and, a, and a, what's called a recuperator, a device that sends it back into position. So it means that rather than being able to fire, let's say, three rounds every two minutes, you can fire 20 or even 30 rounds a minute. It's a huge increase in rate of fire. It's an absolutely revolutionary weapon. And uh, once that weapon is developed and it's in production, you start looking, you, Emil Romilo, start looking for your next, you know, what's your next tr trick? And you decide, oh, well, that's actually the first question. You know, what's, what's next? You've, you've helped develop this wonderful light artillery piece. It's, it's, it's a gun, it's got a very flat trajectory. What's next? Right, and this is where the students would kind of come in. And actually, Bruce, you would actually kind of cold call a lot of these students to kind of get them engaged. I just wanted, before we kind of talk about some of the things that the students responded with, you know, throughout these discussions where you're kind of giving us these history lectures, what I really enjoyed was that you were actually showing us pictures of exactly what you're talking about in some short motion film of, of, of what's going on. And you'd provide us statistics about the weight, the range and, and that kind of stuff. So I thought that was really helpful to kind of get us into understanding the technological and the kind of situational um, things going on. Well, thank you. That's something I think that's peculiar to the the Quantico version of the case method. So you, you can go up to the Harvard Business School and you can do decision forcing cases. And they have a certain way of doing it uh, with a lot of preparatory work, uh, but not always with a lot of illustration. Uh, now there's lots of numbers often, but those numbers are, are given to students before the class. In the Quantico style cases, we've come to rely heavily upon pictures. Uh, it doesn't have to be. We've done cases without pictures. We've got some simple cases we do without pictures. They're not essential, but it really helps to focus participant attention on the problem at hand. It also puts them in the in the era, in the time and place that the, that the decision was made. Mm -hmm. So we come up to our first decision here with Emil Romilo and what's his next moves. And so I took some notes from the actual session that we did with some of the students and some of the things that were coming out, for example, were, well, we could move to a higher caliber. We could add some mobility potentially, do something a little bit more like a tank now that you don't have all the, uh, the recoil. You could look for a howitzer, for example, so that you would have a higher angle of attack and that way you could uh, start shelling some troops that are potentially in the trenches. And one of the students actually said something about making it potentially more manufacturable. I don't know whether... Well, we, we, we can actually talk about that, if you like, because this is interesting, because uh, one of the things that's happening at this time is that there is revolutionary technology, but it's being made in a very old-fashioned way. This is still the French... Ironically, you know, it's the French who invent interchangeable parts They, in, you know, back in the, in the, at the end of the uh, 18th century. There's a guy named uh, Honoré Blanc who works out a system, but they, they forget about it. They don't adopt it. And you have very much a, uh, a system whereby the parts for weapons are made by artisans. They're working in a factory, but it's not a Henry Ford 
assembly line. It's, it's very much a craft, a craft system. One of the possibilities is we've developed this new weapon. Let's find ways of making it, making more of them, making them cheaper, you know, uh, increasing the interchangeability of parts, things like that. So one of these students actually kind of landed on the right answer of what Emil Romilo started doing. So where did we go from here? Well, let me stress that it's not the right answer. It's the historical answer. <laughs> right, right, right. It's what happened. And as, as, as we know in life, the things that happened aren't always right. <laughs> Lots of wrong things happen in, in real life. Uh, the, so it's the historical situation. And it's great fun when you're playing this, when you hit upon what actually happened. But the facilitator should stress that that's not the right answer. We're replicating historical problems, not historical solutions. Right? So, so this, this is a kind of, of reenacting, or as the kids say, LARPing. <laughs> uh, we we, don't, we don't, don't always dress. Sometimes I dress Live up. action role playing. Yes, yes, yes. So sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes when we do these outdoors, sometimes we do this on battlefields, I, so I'll, I'll dress up. I've got my Civil War uniform that I wear. <laughs> and the uh, American Civil War uniform. But uh, we're replicating the problem, not the solution. But the historical solution, what Romilo decides to do is to develop a heavy field howitzer. That's to say, a weapon that fires a much larger shell, but at a much lower velocity, and over a much higher trajectory. At this time, you know, right now we tend to use the words gun and howitzer interchangeably. And we really have for nearly 100 years now. But back then, there was a huge difference. A gun was at least 50% longer than a howitzer, at least, and sometimes 100% longer. So you have a howitzer that might be um, uh, what's called 14 calibers long, which is you know 12 or 14 times the, the diameter of the barrel, whereas a gun might be 24, 28, 30, 30 calibers. Uh, long. So it's a short-barreled weapon that fires a much, much heavier shell. So the French 75 uh, fires a shell that weighed about uh, six or seven kilos, depending on the type. This howitzer that Captain Romilo was imagining fires, uh, would fire a shell that weighed 40 kilos. So that's, that's nearly 100 pounds. Okay, great. So Emil Romilo, as he's moving along here, some of his commanders started giving him some instructions about the path that they would like him to take. Yes. So can you talk about a little bit of uh, the situation he encountered there? Yes, yeah, so, 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 so the, the, the good news is that, or the good news for him, is that his superiors in, in the chain of command, uh, this called the, the Technical Committee of the Artillery, is, is, is the, the, the particular bureau. Remember that the first bureaucracy in human history, at least in the Western tradition, was the, the Bureau of the Bureau Brothers. That was their name in France, and they were charged with finance and artillery. That's a, a story from actually a different case. That's from, from the uh, 15th century. So they approve his plan. They like the way he thinks. We said that we need a weapon like this, and we need it because we agree with you you, Captain Romilo, wrote a memorandum that said, because this weapon is so powerful, it will drive the enemy to, to dig trenches. So he essentially predicts the onset of trench warfare that will happen in a big way uh, in, uh, in World War I. And he says, because we'll drive them into the trenches, we now need a way to drive them out of the trenches. We need, need some way of attacking trenches. So they, they adopt his plan, but they say, 
what you have to do is use the barrels of our old howitzers. They had some howitzers that had been built in the 1880s. So at this point, they're about 20 years old. When they were new, they were state-of-the-art, absolutely top drawer. But uh, now they're, they're obsolete in a, in a couple of ways. Or actually, in one big way, in that the, the technology of, of steel has changed. So what's happened is that there's been the invention of what's called nickel steel. And nickel steel is much stronger than ordinary steel. In fact, it's so strong that you can reduce the weight of the barrel by 25%. And since everything in a gun depends upon the weight of the barrel, you know, the weight of the carriage, the weight of the recoil mechanism, everything else is a function of that. Every kilogram you save on the barrel saves you a lot of weight and money in the building of, of the rest of, of the artillery piece. So this is a big problem. So now I asked the students, say, okay, Emil Romilho, good news, your project's been approved. Bad news, you've been giving this stipulation by the authorities. What do you do? Um, if you accept the deal, you're going to pay all these penalties in terms of design. More than that, you know, or you're in the process of discovering, and there are several small decisions in the course in the case, you're discovering that the private arms manufacturers are using the nickel steel, and they're coming out with new howitzers that are much lighter than the, the one you're designing. So what do you do? Do you accept these restrictions? Do you fight against them? Do you resign in protest and go work for the private arms manufacturer? What do you do? All right, and the students kind of debated there exactly what you were saying. Like some wanted to appeal the decision and try to convince their superiors that the nickel steel was a better option. Others were thinking about how the barrels could be repurposed and save weight potentially that way. And one person was even suggesting that you could sell the old barrels some other country and then finance the new nickel steel barrels. Yes, that was a clever solution. And the um, and ironically, at this time, uh, the, the French government is not involved in arms sales, at least artillery sales. There's a division of labor whereby private French industry is selling to foreign governments, but not to the French government. And the French government uh, is still very much involved in or very very dependent upon its arsenal systems. There's a series of state arsenals that make the weapons for the government. Those arsenals don't buy raw materials and semi-finished materials from the private industry, but the idea is that the people who make the weapons ought to be civil servants. Mm -hmm. So Emil Romilo decided that he would, in fact, use the barrels as instructed. So what happened next? Well, it's worse than he had um, anticipated. Uh, he ends up producing the, uh, the weapons. They're not very good. Be be because of the, the old barrels, uh, the piece is much heavier than he anticipated. It's about twice as heavy as the comparable German piece that's come out in the meantime. So Germany came out with their 1902 heavy field howitzer, roughly the same caliber roughly the same um, type of weapon, but it weighs half as much. So it's much more mobile. The 
Second problem is that there's uh, a limit on range. It's not, it's not huge, but the German piece, the comparable German piece, can shoot out to about 7,500 meters. The piece that Romilo has is limited to about 6,000 meters. So there's a little bit of a, an advantage that the Germans have. So a, a small number of these things are made. The French army doesn't like them. One, because this is a period where they're very much invested in mobility. The second is because it's not an elegant weapon. The 75mm gun is a beautiful weapon. It's in keeping with the spirit of the age. This thing is, it's clunky. And one of the stranger aspects, perennial aspects of the world of defense acquisition is the aesthetics of weapons. And beautiful weapons are much more popular than ugly ones. So there's an aesthetic problem. And so the French army doesn't buy a lot of these things. More than that, because you're using the weapons from the older pieces, which are still quite serviceable, every time you make a new piece, you get rid of an old piece. So there's much less of a, a net improvement in your overall arsenal. And then when uh, it comes to the, the arms race that precedes World War I, in 1911, uh, Joseph uh, Joffre becomes the chief of staff of the French army, and he starts a, a very a crash program of reform and rearmament for the French army because he thinks World War I is coming, and he's, he's right. Can you question whether he's causing World War I that way? It's interesting that a lot of German people argue, make that argument. But because they have a relatively new weapon that fills a certain niche in the table of organization in the order of battle, it prevents them from buying a truly up-to-date weapon. So they're in the position of the law firm in the, in the early 1980s that just bought a whole bunch of beautiful IBM Selectric 3 typewriters. And uh, here I'm showing my age here. <laughs> I, I had a refurbished Selectric 2 in college, and I was in the, in the late 70s, and I was quite the typist then. Um, but what happened in the early 80s is the personal computers come in, you start having these uh, desktop computers that can do word processing. But having spent all this money on these brand new typewriters, who wants to go buy some new computers? The French army finds itself in the, uh, in the early adopter position, the conundrum where they were the first to adopt a new technology and now that technology is obsolete and everybody who's second, third, fourth has benefited from their experience and has a better version of that new technology. And that's bad enough. When the shooting starts, two things happen. One is that all concerned get painful reminders that the German howitzers can shoot a little bit further. So there's a battlefield problem. The second problem is as they start to fire these howitzers at their maximum ranges of about 6,000 meters, they're pushing very hard to get that full, that full range. Romilo's howitzers start to break. Two things happen. One is that the breach mechanism falls apart. Uh, and that's re relatively easy to repair, but it takes time. The second thing is that the barrels fall out of their cradles. <laughs> So it's it, this is this this is something you know you'd expect from you know one of those you know sort of sort of a farcical film where you're, somebody's firing a weapon the weapon falls apart while it's being fired 
So that's happening. So that w within a few weeks of the start of the war, the batteries, and there are uh, 25, 26 batteries of the French army armed with these weapons. So there's about 100 in the inventory. They've sent all their howitzers back to the rear, or most of them, and have uh, replaced them with much older weapons, weapons, in fact, dating from, from 1875. Uh, and as a result, the French army really misses out for the first two years of World War I on what is the most important single artillery piece of the war, which is the heavy field howitzer. Well, the Germans are actually on their way to developing their second generation of such weapons. So they have the 1902 model, they have lots of those, and they've just started to introduce their 1913 model. The British decide very quickly they need this weapon, and uh, they start a procurement process. This is actually a very different case, actually part of the case in this series. But they end up, by the middle of 1915, they, they start getting adequate numbers of their six-inch howitzer, a weapon of the same category. But it's not till really the fall, the autumn of 1916, the French army starts getting anything like the number of, of um, heavy field howitzers uh, that they need, during which time they suffer horribly in all sorts of ways. So, for example, there's a, a basic technique in World War I artillery called the rolling barrage. And the idea is uh, there's a, a wall, a curtain, a wall, or a wall of shells that fall ahead of the infantry as they advance. The Germans use this technique. The Germans, because they have so many heavy field howitzers, use the heavy field howitzer. And that means that the, the German infantry can hug the barrage. They can come up very close to the exploding shells because they know the shells are inherently accurate. And they'll fall in a nice, neat line all other things being equal. Because the French have the high-velocity guns, there's what's called range-probable error, which means that if the guns are behind you, the shell can be 20, 30, 40 yards ahead of the target or behind the target, which means that the infantry has this horrible choice between either hugging the barrage and taking casualties from their own barrage or standing back from the barrage and not enjoying the full effect of the barrage. So there's a huge a human and military cost to this decision. One of the uh, questions that you also put to us there was, how do we convince the political leaders to move towards nickel steel? And I thought some of the answers were pretty interesting because it kind of went from analysis and persuasion it's actually invoking that competition with Germany, who had already moved towards a different type of technology. And I think that competition kind of aspect is pretty powerful for getting politicians to move. And also, one of the other things was emphasizing private steel production instead of the arsenals, because you, as you brought up, some of those French firms were actually already down the road of the nickel steel barrel, and they could have supplied some of this potentially, correct? Yes, yeah, so this is a case where a technological innovation requires a change really in, um, in, in acquisition policy. So the French state has a, a long-standing policy of, of relying upon its own arsenals. That's a big part of the French self-conception. The second thing is this, and this is very hard to believe in, uh, in 2019, but this is long before Keynesian economics. <laughs> so the 
the French state prides itself in its economy. It's very parsimonious. It takes good care of its equipment, holds on to it for a long time. So there are, there are items of equipment uh, being issued to French soldiers that had been built in the 1830s. Wow. Right. You know, the... the um, well, that time differential kind of reminds me of the B-52 to some degree, right? Oh, well, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. No, no, no. <laughs> some of these were, were, were good pieces of equipment. But, but there's a, a great deal of good old-fashioned economy here. So and that's a very big part of the culture. And remember, France at this time is a democracy and very democratic, even probably by today's standard, even more democratic. A lot of things are being discussed in, in Parliament that, that these days would be handled by technocrats. And so it's, it's a very easy argument for a politician to make. Let's be good managers of, of our household and let's make use of these uh, existing uh, weapons. The other thing was there was an enormous pride in that class of weapons because when it was new, it was the best in the world. And, and that's actually one of the themes of this series of cases of which this case is, is part is that if you're really good at one thing in the past, that creates a burden on the future. If you develop a cult of a particular weapon, you know, you have just pride in, in this family of, of weapons. This was called the Debange family of weapons. And uh, some elements of that are actually still being used in American artillery pieces today. It's, no. a, it's a, a, a breach mechanism uh, patented in 1875. And, you know, your colleagues at Scalia will probably, if they're studying uh, patent law, will probably study that case <laughs> from 1875 that from the, or that for the 1875 patent. So some things are hard to improve upon, but the uh, there is, you know, very much the the first adopter problem in defense acquisition. We brought this up before, but it sounds a lot like the same kind of problem as the innovator's dilemma from Clayton Christensen, where, okay, you have an incumbent firm, they've done something great in the past, and now they're trying to sustain this uh, technology, and they're serving their best customers in doing that. But then, by virtue of them taking advantage of that advantage that they already have, they're kind of missing out on the disruptive innovation that might have a trajectory of improvement that will eventually surpass what they're at right now. And there's kind of that culture of adaptability um, in military, in business, and in culture in general um, that I think is an important part of kind of taking advantage and moving. One of the things that at the end of your sessions here, you kind of gave us a flavor of, okay, well, the French did not move towards the nickel steel early, and we kind of hear about some of the implications of that, and it was very costly to the French in that respect. But you never really give us any conclusions necessarily. You kind of end the session by just saying, well, what was this case study about? And the participants answer definitely, and you kind of give some feedback, but you usually leave it open-ended. You're not really saying that this decision was right or wrong you don't really give us that final resolution. What effect do you think this has? Yes, well, the, the like, like Professor Christensen, I'm a case teacher, right? He's, he's a Harvard Business School professor, so he teaches by the case method as well. My business is to provide people with problems, to provide them with exercises, not with solutions. I'm not selling an ideology. If, if you want my opinion, please uh, 
buy my books, <laughs> reasonably priced on Amazon or at book, good booksellers everywhere. Uh, in the classroom, my job, and I realize I'm, I'm very different from many professors <laughs> in, in this world, in, in present-day academia, but my job is not to inflict my opinion upon my students. My job is to give them an experience that helps them to develop their own opinions, to help them helps them develop their own judgment, to exercise uh, their their own gray matter. That's that's the purpose of of these exercises. So uh, I don't want to do what unfortunately even some case teachers do, which is wrap it up and saying, well, here's the right answer, because the right answer depends upon hindsight. And the one thing that people in the real world don't have when faced with a real problem is hindsight. One of our mottos here in the world of decision-forcing cases comes from Dame Wedgwood. Dame Wedgwood was a British historian writing in the early part of the 20th century, middle 20th century. And she said, history is written backwards, but lived forwards. So it's very easy to say they should have bought nickel steel. That's the solution. Why didn't they buy nickel steel? Why didn't that um, imaginary law firm, and I'm sure there's some, you know, just not buy the IBM Selectric because they, they were going to know that the IBM PC was coming down the pike. It's very easy to be wise after the fact, and that warps our judgment. It doesn't help us with the task that all human beings face, particularly in the world of business or acquisition or defense, of making decisions with necessarily imperfect information. And the one thing I guarantee you do not know is the future. Right. You talk a little bit about that difference between the process of decision making and then the outcomes of those decisions. And I think that's really powerful there because you know, you can tell a historical story and then pretend as though there's perfect information about it. But you're right, when you're kind of living through it, there is a great deal of uncertainty. You can't know how it's going to happen and you're not going to have your case study teacher holding your hand who has the prophecy, you know, of exactly what's going to happen and, and let you know about that. So I, I think one of the, I'd like you to react to this, is some of what you're trying to get at here with the case study method just an ability to allow some of the students to handle ambiguity and move forward. And even if the decisions turn out wrong, as long as the process of decision-making is sound and reflective and thoughtful, then, then you're really kind of doing your job. Yes. Tolerance for ambiguity is one of the benefits of studying by the case method. There isn't a lot of research on the case method and how it affects students. I'm part of a tradition of practice, and we have our folk wisdom. But there is, in fact, some good documentation that does show that students who study by the case method have a much higher tolerance for ambiguity than, than people who study by other means. And that, I think, is one of the big benefits of the approach. The other one, and this is related, is there's a degree of humility. If you know how things turned out, there's a tendency a very natural human tendency to think, oh, well, I'm so clever. I wouldn't have made that mistake. But if you step back into time, put yourself in the shoes of a decision maker in a case where you don't know how things turned out. And that's why I'm drawing on things that for the American audience are relatively obscure. Right. Yeah. 
I'm a big believer in using obscure cases so that the students are unable to try to replicate or able to replicate the solution. They really have to focus on the problem. But um, no, the case method taught properly, I think, gives us a degree of humility that I think is very good in, in a, it, it's a virtue in any human being, but particularly uh, important for, for decision makers. Right. I was really surprised, actually, at how much engagement was kind of coming out of the students, but not just that, like how much I really wanted to engage myself. And I think that you're right that the choice of the case was really important because, well, I like history. I'm a kind of a history guy, but you're still like you're bringing up these really detailed cases that I just have no bearing on really of exactly what the solution was or what was going to happen. So you're really into that uncertainty area where you're making these decisions under an uncertainty you don't know how they turn out whereas if you're kind of choosing something that people are more familiar with they would already kind of bring in their preconceived notions and, and potentially bias the answers there and you're not really getting the full effect of what's the process of decision making when you really don't know what it is you don't know well this is i i think our little i won't say it's a secret but an unsung virtue of the case method it's a lot of fun. It is playing dress up in a sense. It is a kind of LARPing. It's a game. In fact, we call our little club the Decision Game Club because sometimes we do exercises that aren't historical. Uh, like th this afternoon, uh, we'll be doing a tactical decision game that uh, is, is speculative. Um, it's a very old one, it's from 1858, but it's from the imagination of the developer. Uh, rather than uh, being something that actually happened. But, you know, human beings... Uh, well, there's an old Icelandic proverb that says it's a game to learn. And that is another one of our mottos. Father Leikur Laira, if I may <laughs> say, throw out my, my very bad Icelandic. Um, if you learn by means of games, you have this kind of wisdom that comes from being humble, but it's also a great deal of fun. The same thing that makes games enjoyable. Not knowing how things will turn out is a mm -hmm. big part of them. You look at most traditional academic teaching and you know, you're know you told what you're going to learn, you're told it again, and then it's summarized for you, and then you return it to the, the professor in the form of an examination of some sort. There's no mystery there. There's no, no surprises. There's, there's no adventure. Whereas the case method, there's there's adventure every every time you uh, you engage a case. I think you're integrating a lot of different kind of ideas into these case studies. Can you describe for us what are the steps of the Socratic conversation, and how does paraphrasing and neutrality help? Okay, so the Socratic conversation, and I, and I use the term conversation deliberately to contrast it with a dialogue. First of all, because dialogue, of course, means two people talking. You know, uh, dia. Um, and the conversation is many people talking. The second thing is, you know, that scoundrel Plato really misrepresented Socrates. I'm, I'm a great believer that if you want the real Socrates, you go to Xenophon and, and not Plato. Plato was somebody using the character of Socrates to push his, well, his totalitarian <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ideas. Um, not somebody we want to imitate. So the conversation really starts with, we start with a cold call. The facilitator picks someone to answer. And we do that for a number of reasons. The big one is to include everybody. 
if you rely upon the volunteers, you'll have a small number of people talking and everyone else not talking. Um, cold calling gets everybody involved, gives people a sense, participants a sense that, well, I could be called next. I need, I need to think about this. So there's a kind of forced engagement there. And of course, we're all good volunteerists here. We don't want to force people to talk. So if somebody doesn't want to talk for any reason, he simply says pass. And we go on to the next person. So we start with a cold call and we ask a pretty open question. It could be what we call Marvin Gaye's question. What's going on? <laughs> and um, uh, or we could ask a decision forcing question as in what do you do? But it's very open-ended. And we're not fishing for an answer. We're not looking for a particular solution. We're saying, hey, you got this problem. What now? Then when uh, the participant gives his solution, the facilitator will often paraphrase that. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is to say, like Fraser Crane, I'm listening. You know, I'm listening to you as a facilitator. You give the other participants a second opportunity to hear what this person is saying. And the third thing is you can clarify things a little bit, often using terms of art and the right nomenclature. Because very often when somebody's giving his, his solution, the idea is half-formed. So the facilitator often will finish the formation of that idea. Not too much. He doesn't want to put words in the mouth of the participant. But it could really serve as another Socratic idea, serve as the midwife of the idea. The mother of the idea is the participant. The facilitator is the midwife. So um, that done, and then there's the, the art of redirection. What do you think about that? get the conversation going. Ideally, the conversation becomes self-generating. Sometimes the facilitator may have to play devil's advocate, either to get um, to, to prevent premature consensus. If everyone starts to go, oh, that's a great idea. But it also challenges people to explain why they think a certain solution would work. So what recommends that solution to you? Why do you think that would work? Do you think there's some problems with that? But again, all very open, open-ended questions. The facilitator is not trying to draw or lead the participants toward a certain conclusion. This is not the Hansel and Gretel method, as some German teachers call it, you know, with the breadcrumbs. Uh, it's qu quite the opposite. The idea is open up the realm of possibilities. Tell me what you think. Yeah, and I thought that was a pretty inviting way of doing it because even if I feel like sometimes one of my answers isn't fully formed. It doesn't really make sense. You kind of like follow up and you kind of impart some logic into it. You can see how a lot of these ideas, they're not really fully formed, but then, you know, there is some logic to all of them. For the most part, you never really hear anyone kind of say something dumb and then it doesn't make any sense. Everyone's always trying to contribute and you really kind of bring the best out of whatever they're contributing so you are neutral. You're not saying it's right or wrong, but you're adding some additional context that can verify or not some of the ideas. And often in the course, in fact, I would say often, it, almost invariably in the course of the Socratic conversation, participants will change their mind or will refine their ideas. Yep. This is a social activity where people are exchanging information, exchanging ideas, but they're only responsible for their own ideas. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think Benjamin Franklin meant when he said that he dropped positive argumentation 
for the Socratic attitude of the humble inquirer. So th this actually comes from reading the something derived from Xenophon, right? So he's um, he's a young man. This is this is from Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, which I recommend to yep. to everybody, particularly young people. So he says, okay, I'm trying to improve my command of English. He's reading a book, and in the book there's a, a little uh, description of the Socratic method via Xenophon. So so from um, the guy who I, I think is the proper witness to the life and work of Socrates. And he says, hmm, I've been, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Ben Franklin, I'm smarter than everybody else. <laughs> and I've been letting people know that. And I've been, I've been very argumentative. I, I make my point by saying this is the way it is. And he said, you know, I've changed my mind here. I'm now gonna approach things really by questions. So I'm going to draw out other people's ideas. I don't need to inflict my opinion upon them. I need to engage their opinions, refine those, get into a conversation, and either maybe they'll come to my point of view or maybe I'll come to their point of view. But it's a, it's a much more mature way of dealing with the discussion, also a much more pleasant way. And, and again, he called that putting on the humble, or humble inquirer. And what it is is really, I think, the application of the scientific method to conversation. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it really does, now that I hear you say it, it kind of feels like the case studies that you're leading actually are in part teaching someone to be that humble inquirer and move them away from the positive argumentation. Because I believe, you know, for myself, I kind of probably come from that more positive argumentation kind of background. But it's a, definitely a virtue to move towards having that humble inquirer, being open to different solutions, and just realizing, you know, you don't know what the answers are necessarily. Yeah. And I think, you know, f especially for leadership, that's an important lesson to learn when you're young while you're still malleable. Yeah, there's a, there's a wonderful novel by Neil Stevenson, uh, which includes a historical novel uh, that... Um, one of the characters is, is a young Ben Franklin. He's, a, he's about you know, 10, 12 years old. And he's an insufferable little know-it-all. You, know? <laughs> you, 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 you go, okay, well, you know, this, 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 this is um, just, you can imagine his playmates being driven to absolute distraction by him. But what's, what's interesting, well, for, first of all, the interesting thing is I'm using positive argumentation to make a case against positive yeah. <laughs> <laughs> argumentation. So, so I'm, I'm aware of the paradox here. But most systems of formal schooling, which are really about learning arguments and then repeating those arguments, give us these very bad habits when it comes to conversation, when it comes to dealing with, with decisions, when it comes to dealing with new problems, because we're rewarded in school for, one, having the right answer, and giving that right answer in a way that is free of equivocation. So if you write an essay, it says, it seems to me, if I'm not too badly mistaken, perhaps you get marked down most places. If you're taking an examination, having a very clear idea of what the preferred answer is, or what the right answer is, is how you, you get ahead. And then you do that for 15, 20 years, and then enter into the world of different things, the world of, of decisions with consequences, and you're very poorly equipped for that uh, because of the way you're thinking. You're, all, you're always thinking about, do I have the right answer, as opposed to, am I solving a problem, 
or if I found the right problem, number one, but am I solving this problem uh, in a way that that's good for all concerned? Yeah, one of the things that I had been hearing was that idea that, well, you're supposed to be a leader and have the right answers, but whenever your uh, people come up to you and they have some dissent, they see something wrong or they have a difference of opinion, you almost have to take those guys under your wing, understand them better. You don't want to give an arbitrary decision and just kind of say, well, this is the way it is and don't explain it and then expect them to kind of come along with you. Because almost certainly those people down there are understanding some costs, uncertainties, or some alternatives that might not be in your mental model. So here's another paradox here. And, and you, you know, I, 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 you can tell I, I'm very fond of paradoxes. So uh, on the one hand, the case method, working through the cases like this, decision-forcing cases, fosters the virtue of humility. It makes one a better listener. On the other hand, it also makes one more decisive. So when a decision has to be made, a person well-schooled in the case method will make that decision. But he also realizes that until it's time to actually make a decision, there's really no point in forming an opinion. You could form multiple potential opinions, but there's no sense in becoming opinionated until you actually have to make a decision. Because if you think about every time you've encountered someone who acted in an opinionated way, that opinion was usually divorced from action. And that's what makes it really irritating, is that somebody says, yeah, I've made up my mind about this. I don't have skin in the game. I, I'm not a stakeholder here, but I, I've got an opinion. As opposed to saying, yes, no, no. An opinion is is something you can suspend in your mind, keep it ready, have several of them, and then when the rubber meets the road, when a decision is required, you, you can make a decision. But there's no point in, in making that decision ahead of time. Yeah, I think Nassim Taleb, who just recently came out with a book, Skin in the Game, he kind of argues that to take your opinion and then to try to force other people or to give advice and try to have other people act on that opinion when you are not having skin in the game of those exact same actions is an immoral action. I think that was an interesting thing that kind of came out of of, of Nassim Taleb because, again, there's lots of uncertainty. And if, if you don't have skin in the game, right, then all you're doing is just talking and you're not really potentially looking at all of the costs and you're not putting all the effort into making those decisions under uncertainty that you might otherwise would. So I wanted to ask you, how can our audience actually participate in some of these case studies that you've been discussing? There's a couple of ways. If, if you're in the Northern Virginia area, come join us at our regular Thursday afternoon face-to-face uh, meetings. We, 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 have, we have what we call the Decision Game Club. It's at Rinker University uh, here in Quantico, and every Thursday at, at 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. And our sole item of business at every meeting of the club is to work through usually a decision-forcing case, sometimes a decision game of uh, other sorts. The other venue we have is what we call the E-Bildung project. Bildung uh, is, is an old German word that means the development, not just of intellect, but of character, the cultivation of intellect and character. And this is an online engagement of decision-forcing cases. And we do that 
every Tuesday evening at 7.30, 7.30 to 8.30 Eastern Time, that's Quantico Time or Washington, D.C. Time, for those who, of you who don't know Northern Virginia. Um, and we also do them on uh, Friday mornings at 11. So there are, there are three opportunities each week to join us. And if you're interested, we have a, a website, a relatively easier URL. It's teachusmc.blogspot.com. Yeah, we'll, we'll put the link to the website, and we'll put your email as well there so that people can contact you. I definitely recommend anyone who's interested, if you just, you know, will watch history shows or YouTube lectures, you know, this is actually one step, I think, better than that because, you know, you're getting kind of a lecture from one of the top historians and actors in this area, but also, you know, you're getting that engagement. And I think the engagement is actually what was actually most fun for me because when I heard about this, I kind of came in with my preconceptions about what it would be and it kind of threw those away and, and replaced it with something much better. So definitely we'll put some links up to that um, on the website and in the summary of this podcast. And uh, I definitely recommend anyone to reach out and just give it a try. It's just an hour. There's three opportunities each week. So so definitely um, reach out to Bruce here and, and give it a try. It's, it's a lot of fun. We'll give you a good experience. The one thing you won't get is my opinion. And if you <laughs> want my opinion, uh, again, I invite you to, to buy my books. Yes, and I definitely recommend uh, the books. He has a number of them I'm reading through on artillery right now. Just a lot. He actually also brings in a lot of these pieces about innovation and also innovation on the military and the technology side. So I really appreciate a lot of a lot of his books. So definitely go check those out. And I wanted to kind of shift gears here a little bit. Uh, you've had a really fascinating career. And in 1989, you were asked to help design the curriculum for the School of Advanced Warfighting for the Marine Corps. And that was right around the time that FMFM1, which is now um, MCDP, or Marine Corps Doctrinal Publication 1, that was right around that time that that was being developed, and you were kind of like right there in, in the middle of it all. I would just like you to describe what the atmosphere of that was like, and whether kind of a similar type of reform in thinking is um, due for acquisition. Yeah, so, so that, that period of time was called Harry Summers the author of On Strategy called it the Quantico Renaissance. And it was a period, uh, there was a remarkable, actually quite serendipitous chain of events that led to the commandancy of a man named Alfred Gray. And uh, the Marine Corps, unlike the other services, is a monarchy. Right? The, the uh, Army, Navy, Air Force are oligarchies. Uh, Marine Corps really is a monarchy with a, with a commandant in charge, the Coast Guard's the same way. And so he becomes the, the, the monarch of the Marine Corps for four years. And he inaugurates a number of important changes. The most important of which was to create an atmosphere in which a lot of people felt free to experiment, to try new things, to engage with each other, uh, to, to bring in interesting people. We, we brought in actually a lot of science fiction writers. Interesting. Yes, the... the um, uh, most famous of, of, of whom is Orson Scott Card, the author of, of Ender's Game. So it was, it was a wonderful time. It was a, a no-holds-barred, no-intellectual limits. It's quite, quite the opposite of the, the, the stereotype of the, the blinkered military uh, person um, 
who is burdened by a great deal of rigid thinking. It was, it was wonderfully uh, flexible, open, uh, humane. One of the leaders of this, uh, Mike Wiley, Colonel Mike Wiley, is a, a just exquisitely well-educated man. After he retired from the Marine Corps, he ended up running a ballet company. Uh, his daughters are enthusiastic or were enthusiastic ballet dancers. So it was as different from your stereotypical military stereotype as, as, as one could imagine. So, so the question about acquisition. Right. Um, I don't know if the stars can align in, in the same way for acquisition. And the difficulty is acquisition, most military things are really about culture, about ideas and culture. Acquisition is about culture and interests, right? So there's a lot of money at stake. And our problem with acquisition is that the, we have, we have many problems. And a, lo a lot of them are cultural problems. But I think there's also the, the, the problem of that a lot of players have a lot of skin in the game. Not so much in terms of, well, you know about the patterns of investment among defense, um, the big defense contractors. Really, their stock and trade is relationships, mm -hmm. not not uh, not bending metal. So, if we're to replicate the Quantico Renaissance in most corners of the armed forces, it would require a, some sort of replication of that kind of cultural phenomenon. To do it for acquisition, you need both culture and a reform of incentives. So it's it's a double problem. So uh, although I would love to be to see that, even be part of it, if I could. I'm I'm not optimistic. Yeah, I want to uh, give the audience a little flavor of what was coming out of that Marine Corps Renaissance. I just want to give a quote from the MCDP one, uh, and when I was reading through MCDP one a couple of years ago. I was just thinking, well, you could almost replace war and combat here with, you know, technology development and the acquisition process, and a lot of it would stand up. So I, I just want to, it's kind of a longish quote, but I think it's, I think it's a really good one. So, quote, the very nature of war makes certainty impossible. All actions in war will be based on incomplete, inaccurate, or even contradictory information. While past battlefields could be described by linear formations and uninterrupted linear fronts, we cannot think of today's battlefield in linear terms. As a result, war is not governed by the actions or decisions of a single individual in any one place, but emerges from the collective behavior of all of the individual parts in the system interacting locally in response to local conditions and incomplete information. A military action is not the monolithic execution of a single decision by a single entity, but necessarily involves near countless independent but interrelated decisions and actions being taken simultaneously throughout the organization. Efforts to fully centralize military operations and to exert complete control by a single decision maker are inconsistent with the intrinsically complex and distributed nature of war. And I think this quote here kind of implies a, a certain type of culture that kind of embraces uncertainty as opposed to unification of decision making, which is really what the defense acquisition process was founded on. And I think this quote kind of talks to, well, some part of the culture that might need to start adapting 
in the Department of Defense acquisition side for us to kind of have a similar reform. Yes, here's the paradox. Of course, we're in the Department of Defense for nearly half a century now. Actually, we're, we're past the half century point. We've been burdened by the systems introduced by Robert Strange McNamara. Ironically, somebody who came out of the Harvard Business School. But his idea basically was this is all really a branch of engineering and that the, the clever engineer at the top, given the right data, can make all these decisions and, and everything will, will, flow, will flow from that. I think uh, if, and again, focusing on the cultural side of reform, I think if you had, if you could imagine a world in which the people who are influential in the world of, of defense procurement are all trained by means of, of decision-forcing cases of the kind we've described, with those virtues, the bias for action, the humility, the appreciation for the chaotic nature of both the battlefield and and the world of business, I think that uh, we would greatly reduce a lot of the pathologies that come from the overcentralization, because that's a it's a very expensive hobby we have there. <laughs> yes. So, what lessons do you think Clausewitz would have provided? that could also apply to business world and business leaders. So so Clausewitz is it was we're talking about Carl von Clausewitz and uh, he was he was in some respects I'm not exactly sure how he did it but he was a case teacher. So w when he was teaching at the War Academy in 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 Berlin about 1810 1811 he's using a lot of case studies. Again, I don't know if he used them in a decision-forcing way. I know he used some hypotheticals in a decision-forcing way. And uh, because his teacher was Gerhard von Scharnhorst, who was a great fan of these, these hypothetical decision games, speculative decision games, what we now call tactical decision games. So I don't know exactly how he did it, but I do know he was using a lot of cases. In fact, I, last year I taught a course called Cases from Clausewitz which was an attempt to replicate that because his class notes have survived. So I think the case method is very, very Clausewitzian. That said, I think most people try to use Clausewitz as a cookbook or as a kind of holy writ, a repository for quotations, which I think is not the way to engage that great, or any great work, but particularly that great work. Uh, I'm talking about his magnum opus, the, the, the book uh, on war. If you want to engage Clausewitz, the first thing I recommend is next time I teach cases from Clausewitz, come join us. And I'll be, be doing a lot of those on the on our on, online, the e-building classes, the online classes. But I recommend to treat Clausewitz as your sparring partner as somebody to engage with, somebody you, you want to wrestle with. It's interesting that Clausewitz loves wrestling metaphors. Be definitely a, a WWW fan these days. I'm being a little facetious here. The <laughs> WWE these w days. Yes, WWE. <laughs> I'm showing my age. Um, or as my grandfather said, wrestling. So my recommendation for those who want to study Clausewitz, start off by reading Roger Parkinson's biography of him and 
then read the biography of his wife, written by my friend Vanya Bellinger. Engage him as a person, as a human being, before you start engaging his philosophy, and then things will start making sense. He will not give you a positive doctrine. He will not tell you what to do, but you will be much improved by the exercise you get by engaging him. Interesting. Uh, I think that the biography route is actually usually a very good way to kind of start getting introduced into new ideas that are very complicated. Oftentimes I'll want to just jump to like the magnum opus type of work from a, from a thinker. But then once I read it, I realize, you know, years later when I come back, I'm like, well, I just completely did not understand what I read and it, and it took me a lot longer and I had to go through the things that I should have done before, like the biographies, like getting some background before I, I could really internalize some of that information. So do you have any advice or techniques for us when we read? Oh, how to read. Um, I think the, well, the first thing is, is listen to your books. So I'm a great fan of audio books and podcasts, as you can, you can imagine. So the second thing, uh, and this is a bit of advice I found in an old British military journal from the 1920s or 1930s. When you read something assume everything you're reading is wrong. So read critically and make the author do, do a little work, uh, a little heavy, heavy lifting. Don't treat the arguments that you're reading, don't accept them uh, initially, uh, but say, hmm, is that true? Why do I think that's true? Or why isn't this true? So really argue with what you're reading argue with your books great yeah i have uh i think the quote here quote you should mentally reject everything that you read or hear until you are satisfied in the light of your own judgment that it is sound and i think uh, potentially this kind of way of working through case studies not just in military but just kind of like through our lives might help us uh better be able to combat some of this quote fake news kind of stuff where people don't really they might just accept things kind of without really thinking them through without having a conceptual background to kind of put them into their into their respective places yes be skeptical not cynical <laughs> bruce goodmudson thank you for joining me on acquisition talk thank you so much eric This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.